this series, I want to look at what the New Testament says about giving. But before we look at what it actually says, we need to first of all look at what it doesn't say. Specifically, I want to look at the topic of tithing. And I want to ask the question, should Christians tithe? So it's one of these ideas that we hear talked about almost every week in church. In most churches, we'll still do an offering talk every week and um, Christians will be taught that they need to tithe. It's just part of their Christian um, duty. One of their part of their Christian um, practices is that they need to be tithing. And generally, the, it's taught that they need to be giving 10% of their income, or if it's not explicitly said, it's assumed that it's 10% of their income to the church um, for the various functions of the church. But again, I reiterate, it's never mentioned in the New Testament, not once. There's not a single um, mention of the word, let alone any instruction uh, in the New Testament that says that a Christian has to tithe. Everything we find about tithing comes from the Old Testament. So already that should indicate that there's a problem going on, yet we insist on it, again, more than any other spiritual practice uh, that there is. So what is it about? What is tithing about? Is it something that Christians need to do? Well, well, that's what we're going to look at this week. But to do that, we need to really look at the history of tithing. Where, where does it begin? What's it all about? And most importantly, does it still apply to Christians today? Okay, so what is tithing? Well, it obviously everything we know about it comes from the Old Testament. So the question perhaps we have to ask ourselves is, what is the Old Testament? Um, what is its place in our lives? It's obviously in our Bibles, but to what extent does it apply to us as Christians? How do we use it? What is this set of texts all about? Um, well, to really get a sense of its starting point, we need to go back to the go and have a look at the history of, of Israel. So let's take our, our sort of starting points from the Exodus. So we, we it's a story you'd all be familiar with, of course, that the Israelites were uh, came out of Egypt and over the next few centuries God established them as his people. Now it's it's very it's impossible really to date this accurately, but they estimate somewhere around about the middle of the 13th century. So let's just say for argument's sake, around about 1250 is when we find the Exodus, when we, when we find the Israelites coming out of Egypt. So to put that into some perspective, that's about the same time as the Battle of Troy. So Homer's story of Troy when the the um, the Greeks were attacking the Trojans, that's all happening at around about the same time. So in other words, we're talking about the Bronze Age. Okay, we're talking about, um, you know, in the decades prior to the collapse of the Bronze Age. So this is a very, very long time ago. All right, this is in a, a period of history which is really long forgotten uh, in, in all of our imaginations. So this is a very old period. And what we're talking about is a time pre-money. Okay, this is a time before money even exists. This is in a, a, very much in an agrarian society. This is in a time where you, all of your wealth is, uh, is understood as the land that you own. Um, and, and whatever it is that that land can produce. Uh, when we talk about uh, a shekel um, in the Old Testament, we're not talking about uh, a denomination. We're not talking about a dollar or some sort of coinage. What we're talking about is a measure. A shekel is a measure of 
of metal, uh, of precious metal. Um, similar to the word talent, a talent is it's not again it's not a denomination. It's it's a measure. It's uh, it's a certain amount of gold or silver or whatever it is that you you happen to possess. So it's a pre-money time. Um, and so in this particular time, this is when God is bringing his people out of Israel and he's establishing them, sorry, bringing them out of Egypt and he's establishing them uh, in Canaan. This is going to be their new land and this is a new idea. This is a new people. It's a new nation that he's trying to establish. And so in order to establish a nation, you need a set of laws. You need a constitution. So in the same way that uh, a nation today will have its own constitution, it will have its own document which sets out what these people are going to be about, what it means to be part of this nation. And so these are our, our values. These are uh, uh, what, who we are. This is our identity. And most importantly, these are our laws. This is what it, what you have to do to be part of these people, to be part of us as a people group. These laws are establish who we are, what we do, what we don't do. And when you violate these laws, you can be expected to be punished. Uh, this is this is what it is that we're about. It's our constitution. So when God sets up his nation, to be a nation, to be a people group, you need a constitution. Uh, and that's exactly what he lays out in the Old Testament. And so what we call it is the Pentateuch. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament are the Pentateuch, uh, are the constitution of the nation of Israel. These are their laws. These are their identity markers. So immediately what, we may, what I'm saying here is that the Pentateuch, the, the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us and it doesn't even apply to um, any specific nation today because that nation doesn't exist anymore. That nation that God established is no longer there. Um, what Israel is today is, is, is an entirely different thing to what it was three and a half thousand years ago. Um, so straight away, what we recognize is that this Old Testament that we have, it's not a document for us to live by. Now, we probably know that intuitively. The Old Testament doesn't relate to New Covenant Christians but it's good for us to understand what this thing actually is. It's, it's a constitution. And so within this constitution, what God also needs to establish is effectively a tax. He needs to establish the way in which this nation is going to fund itself. Now, again, I said a moment ago that this is an agrarian society. This is a, a time before money where your wealth is tied up in the land that you own. So what happens during this exodus is that God gives the nation uh, land. He gives them property. And the way that the land is distributed is that each of the tribes, so if you remember there's 12 tribes of Israel, they're all given uh, an inheritance of land and that land is given to, to the tribe for the tribe to then divide up amongst its people. And each of those blocks of land is to be given to the individuals in order for them to produce their own food. It's not going to be a case of, um, you know, we, we just, you know, uh, the government provides everybody with their food. You have to provide your own food. That's how an agrarian society works. You own a piece of land and that land is going to, you, what is going to be what you use to feed your family. And if you're 
prosperous. If you produce more than that, then you have a little bit to trade with. Um, but primarily, it's up to you to provide your own resources. So everyone has their own piece of land. All of the tribes are given land, except for the Levites. The Levites don't get land in this distribution. And the reason why they don't is because they have a different job. Their job is not to grow food and provide. Their job is to do the work of the ministry. So what God needs in this nation, he's their king, but he needs a priestly class. He needs a, a set of, for want of a better term, government officials to, to run things, to run the, um, the, well, parliament, I guess, again, for want of a better term. God being king, he needs administrators, and that's the job of the Levites. So what, what happens is that the Levites don't get a distribution. They don't get their own state. So there's the, each of the tribes becomes a gets its own section of the new land that effectively becomes a state, um, the, a particular territory. The Levites don't get that. Levites instead are distributed amongst the other eleven tribes. So they all have. So they're all sort of scattered throughout the entire land of Israel. And every state, every tribe has its own distribution of Levites to do that ministry on their behalf. So if you don't have land, then obviously you can't produce food. You have no way of looking after yourself and your family. So you need to be looked after. You need to be taken care of by the people, which is what the job of the tithe is. As we're going to see, the idea of the tithe is that that's going to be used in order for these Levites who, who themselves don't have land to be taken care of. So that's the basic setup of, uh, of, of what this initial um, Old Testament Pentateuch is all about. And everything we have or everything we know about tithing, everything we learn about tithing comes from this constitution. It comes from these first five books of the Bible. So already we can see that it doesn't apply to us. It has no, it has no bearing on us whatsoever. Three and a half thousand year, year old constitution for a specific geographical area of Canaan to a particular ethnic group of Israelites, that simply doesn't apply to us today. So really that should be all that we need to say about it. But we've got a bit of time. So let's go through the history of tithing, what it's all about, and especially ask the question, are there any principles to tithing that could still apply to us today? Is there anything we can gain from it that might still have some bearing on our lives as Christians today? So that's what we'll look at for, for the rest of this particular episode. So there are a number of key texts in this Pentateuch to talk about tithing specifically. And so I've taken some the key ones out and we'll just quickly read through them again, just to get an idea of what the tithing is about and just see if we can draw any principles from it. So 20, Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. Now, again, you notice we're talking about food products here. We're not talking about money because money doesn't exist yet. Uh, it is holy to the Lord. So whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value of it, a fifth of the value to it. Uh, every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So again, basically, so specifically whatever food products, whatever animals are produced on your land, the first tenth of it belongs to the Lord. So this is your tax that you owe as a nation 
um, to your government. In the same way that you today pay taxes, there's there's a first portion that is given straight to the government before any of it goes to you. Um, that's that's the government's money. And it's, it was no different here. This is a tax. It goes directly to the Levites or it goes directly to uh, the government. Um, so all of that's already dedicated. That's just fixed into whatever it is that you produce. Now, to understand this, every other nation does the same thing. Um, everything you produce, there's always going to be a portion given to the gods. That's just the way that these ancient societies worked. Um, the, the Israelites were no different, only that it was this fixed measure given for these specific purposes. So then Numbers 18.20 says, So then the Lord said to Aaron, you will, so Aaron, being, remember being uh, Moses' brother, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share amongst them. I am your share and your inheritance amongst the Israelites. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they will do while serving at the tent of meeting. So this is what we said before, that the Levites, so Aaron and Moses being from the tribe of Levi, Aaron being sort of the, the head then of the priestly, of the priesthood, uh, they get the tithe. That's what God's saying here. I'm going to set aside a tithe specifically for you and for your tribe um, so that you can simply do the work. So it's a tax for the purposes of running the government, the government being the Levites, because we're talking about uh, a king who is a god. We're talking about a theocracy here. Uh, and so, I mean, all of this just makes sense. This is all very straightforward government, national sort of um, practices that are happening. Uh, Deuteronomy 12.5 says, But you were to seek the place of the, the, the place the Lord your God will choose from amongst all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. So this is talking about the establishment of a capital, right? So what we know later on is going to be Jerusalem. God's saying, okay, so I'm going to build a temple and that's where all of this is going to go. So the temple being Parliament House. So in a nation, you've got a capital, you've got your your main building, which if your God is a king, uh, your king is a God, then it's going to be a temple. I mean, all of this is just standard sort of nation building language right so jerusalem is going to be established and that's going to be the place where all of this will eventually be will eventually be brought and stored uh, and that's where the the main um the the ministry will be run out of all of that i mean all of this i'm sure is making perfect sense to you this is how it's all how this nation is going to be built up and this is where it, where all of this is coming from so again i mean you know already if we're going to start to take tithing literally you've you can already see some of the problems that are happening here um it needs to be to a specific place which is jerusalem it needs to be for the purposes of the levites who don't exist anymore it needs to be a food products well that doesn't work because no one farms anymore there's only a few percent of the population farm anymore i mean it's already we've got some difficulties happening here okay Deuter deuteronomy 14 22 says be sure to set aside a tenth of all of your fields th that your fields produce each year 
eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the God, the, the Lord your God, always. So it's not about not only just bring the tithe to Jerusalem, but have some of it. Actually eat some of this tithe. Now, remembering this is not a weekly thing. We talk about tithing weekly. They talked about tithing annually because you only grow one crop a year. So we're talking about food products. We're talking about animals being born. Again, that only happens once a year. So we're talking about at the harvest, after the harvest, okay, you've done all your harvesting, you've, you've brought all the grain in. Well, you take the first 10% of that and that's what you bring down to Jerusalem. So you can, that, that's very practical because you've got plenty of time. You've brought the harvest in and now we're coming into winter. It's going to be a while before you start to sow again. So you've got some time. You've got a couple of months. And during this time, you take your part of your harvest, you bring it to Jerusalem, and then you have a party. Right? Everybody celebrates. Everybody celebrates the harvest. This is this is a typical time of celebration in an agrarian society. Um, the harvest has come in, it's been successful or it hasn't been, whatever. Uh, but we've got all of a sudden we've got this abundance of food. And let's celebrate the fact. Right? We've we've been rationing all year, trying to make last year's harvest last until we where we are today. Well, here we are, we've got an abundance again. Let's celebrate the fact that God has blessed us, that we're living in a great nation, all of these things. Now's the time to party. Where's that going to come from? Well, it's going to come from the tithe. So the tithe, first of all, is to be shared amongst the people that made it. So bring it all in. Let's have a party. Now, of course, there's a lot here. You know, 10% of everyone's harvest is still more than anyone can eat in one sitting. So there's going to be plenty left over. But before anything else, bring in the tithe and let's let's celebrate it. So again, if, we, if we're going to insist on this as a practice in church, we need to first of all insist that, okay, let's bring in the offering and then let's go out for lunch. Let's everybody celebrate by taking this money and buying everybody lunch today. And then whatever's left over, we can use that to run the church and next week we'll do the same thing again. But of course, we don't actually do that, do we? Uh, he goes on in verse 24. <clears throat> But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord God will choose. Now, remembering that Jerusalem hasn't been established yet, they're not sure yet where the, where the capital is going to be built. So he's saying now, in the event that it's too far away and you don't want to be carrying 10% of your crop, which is a lot of grain and a lot of food or a lot of animals, sell it or trade it in for metal. So, you know, shekels of silver or gold, which is obviously much more portable, bring that down to Jerusalem and use that to purchase some food in order to be part of the celebration. So pretty simple sort of process. He goes on, use the silver to buy with it whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. So the point here is simple. Everybody needs to participate. Now, you've got plenty of time. Again, you've got lots of time because it's going to be a while before you need to sow again. So come on down to Jerusalem. 
you got too much to carry, you got too far to go, that's fine. Trade it in, get the silver, come down, use that silver to buy um, part of to buy more tithe, and then bring that in, and and away you go. So pretty pretty simple sort of procedure here. But again, the point is everybody needs to participate in this, and everyone needs to share in the harvest. It's this is a time of celebration because God has blessed us, and well, let's party. But very importantly, and this is where he goes on, verse 27, and do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So first of all, before you come down to Jerusalem, before you bring your tithe down, make sure that you've you've set aside some of it for the Levites, the ones that are ministering immediately in your neighborhood. So you're going to bring some of the tithe down to Jerusalem, but you're also going to leave some of it aside for your own Levites, the guys who are going to participate in this as well, but don't have any land because they're they're doing the work of ministry. Uh, verse twenty eight: At the end of every three years, bring all of the year of that year's tithes produce and store it in your towns. And so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so the Lord your God may bless you all. In the work of your hands. All right, so there's a few sort of distributions that are happening here. Every three years, that all of the tithe gets kept in your own town. Now, again, we're talking about a lot of food. Let's just say that there's a hundred far, there's a hundred land owning um, uh, Israelites here. You might only have let's say five Levites. Well, a hundred landowners and all of their land and 10% of that is a lot of food, right? Every year, that's a lot of food. And for five Levites, it's far too much. They don't need that much to survive on. So every only every third year do you set aside the entirety of the tithe and then give that to the Levites. But then for the other two years, you bring it down into Jerusalem for, the, for a sort of a broader distribution. Now... So that's, that's sort of how you're looking after your local guys. But notice what he says here. So that the Levites, who've got no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. So every three years, you're setting aside all of the tithe in, in your particular town or your particular region, and that's to go to the Levites who are, there's a few Levites there, but there's still lots of food, well, there's another purpose that he's talking about here for the tithe, which is those who don't own land. So it's not just the Levites who don't own any land, it's also the foreigners. Why don't the foreigners, where are the foreigners coming from? Well, obviously from foreign lands, but they were never part of the original distribution. So God distributed the land amongst his own people, and that's the land that you're going to inherit for the generations to come. So presumably there's no land left. Right, so if you're coming as a foreigner, well, what what are you going to live on? Right, there's no land. It's not like you can just go and buy blocks of land that are available. They're not. Everything has been given out to God's people. So you're coming in as a foreigner, looking for um, you. You might have escaped what, whatever you've come from. You've come over to Israel. Um, you have no land. Well, someone needs to look after you. You're now part of the people. Someone's got to look after you. Well, that's going to come out of the tithe. And what about the fatherless? Who are the fatherless? Well, obviously those without fathers. But what that means is that they don't have an inheritance. So the idea is that you are given land and you pass it on to your children. Well, what if you don't have a father? Well, then you've got no land. 
So you're now landless. You don't have any means of reduction. You need someone to look after you. What about the widows? Same thing. So these are the people that have no means of production, right? It's they're poor because they don't have any, any way of looking after themselves and say, well, go get a job. Well, there's no jobs because everyone's job is only land and farming, right? It's not a, there's no other options for you. So for these people, they're destitute. Well, that's the other, the other objective of the tithe. Number one is to look after the ministry, to look after the Levites, the priesthood, but also then those who don't have land, any other means of production. In other, one, in other words, people that are absolutely impoverished. So that's really it. That's what tithing is. That's the key teachings that we have about it. And any other mentions of tithing in the Pentateuch is only repeating these same instructions. This is everything there is about it. So it's it's from products from the land. Uh, it's every year it's brought in because it's part of a harvest. Every three years it's kept locally, but then the other two years it's brought into Jerusalem. And specifically, it's for the purposes of supporting the landless, those who don't have any means of production, and then also the Levites. Now, as we go through the, New, the Old Testament, there are other times where it's talked about, but it's in the context of when things go wrong. So there's a really good example of this in 2 Chronicles 31. Now, what's happened in this story is that King Ahaz has led the people away to foreign gods. Uh, so they've gone, as was the story of Judah and Israel, time and time again. They go and worship the gods of the lands around them, and God comes along and he brings prophets and he ultimately punishes them. Well, this has happened again, and so Ahaz has led the people away to foreign gods. Now, why has that happened? Why is it that they have not, that, that they've worshipped these foreign gods? Well, the priesthood has failed, right? The ministry has failed. They've allowed this to happen. They haven't been there to protect uh, the people. They haven't been there to protect Yahweh from, um, from this particular king. And so they've been led astray. Well, then along comes King Hezekiah and he restores the priesthood. He restores the temple. And having restored the temple and the priesthood, the first thing that he needs to do is to reestablish the tithe because the problem was that the people stopped tithing. You stop tithing, you lose the priesthood. You lose the priesthood, you lose your way, you lose your direction. So one thing leads to another. So the first thing that always gets reestablished when you reestablish the nation is the, is the tithe because that's essential for the priesthood to function. Okay, so in summary, what is tithing about? Well, simple, two things. Number one, support the Levites. In other words, support the priesthood. And then secondly, to support those without land. That's it. That's what tithing has always meant to be about. So how, what is this, as the story goes on then of Israel, what does this look like? Where do we, um, and especially where, how does this sort of come into the New Testament? What does it look like by the time we get to the New Testament? Well, that's what we'll look at right now. So the next major historical development that we find happens around about the 7th century BC. So we're talking sort of the 600s BC. Now, at the time, the people that were the um, the sort of main empire that we're talking about here is the um, uh, is the Babylonian Empire prior just just pre pre the Babylonian Empire. Now, the big development that's occurring here is the development of money. This is when we find the first evidence of money 
that's been developed um, throughout the region of Asia Minor. So this it's a whole different story, but this is a time where uh, Asia Minor, so what is modern-day Turkey through to the Middle East, this whole area is just sort of one large kingdom after the other. Uh, and so we get the development of money for the purposes of paying armies. So the way that history has always worked up until this point is that you have your own block of land and that's the land that you farm. That's what produces the food for you, for your family year in, year out. Now in this sort of context, what that means is that if you go off to war, you can only go off for a very short time, for only about six months at a time. In fact, there's a really, there's a little obscure little verse in uh, 1 Samuel 2, sorry, 2 Samuel 12, 1, which says, in the springtime when kings go off to war. That's a bizarre verse. The, the, the whole story there is the story of David and Bathsheba, but this little obscure verse, in the springtime kings go off to war. What's going on there? Well, first of all, in the springtime, so we're talking about March in the Northern Hemisphere, um, you go off to war because that's the time when the crops are growing, right? There's nothing to do. You've done all the you've done the harvesting the previous year. You've um, you've sown everything prior to spring, so prior to March, you've done all that through the winter, and so now it's time to do something else. You've got six months, uh, so you've spring and summer ahead of you, where you've got nothing to do but hope that it rains and hope that the crops grow. Well, you're going to go down to the village down the road and start a war with them and see if you can steal a bit of their stuff to supplement your stuff. Maybe get some slaves, maybe get some gold, whatever it is that you need. Um, that's what you do. So in the springtime, kings go off and have, have battles with each other. But what everyone agrees on is that the minute it's harvest, the war stops. Everyone goes back to their farms because if you miss the harvest, you starve for the next year. So you, you need to be back for the harvest. So that's the way battles always work. You don't get these long, drawn-out, protracted wars because, again, you're talking about short-term skirmishes because you have to get back for the harvest and everybody knows that. It's literally, all right, weapons down, um, we'll see you back here next spring, but we've all got to go and get our harvest. So that's how it always works. Well, when we come to this time in the sort of 7th century, you've got these massive empires that have been built with these huge, huge standing armies who in most cases, made up of people that don't own land anymore, right? When you're talking about empires, you're talking about people that own vast amounts of land that used to be held by small property owners. Um, well, all of that's gone away now. And so you've got a whole lot of people now who are fighting in these armies who either don't own land or are going to be years and years in these battles and are going to be away from their lands for a very long time. Whatever the case is, it's not, it's not an issue of, well, you know, weapons down, let's go back to the harvest. There is no harvest to go back to. We're in this army now and this is, if this is our career. This is what we're doing from now on. So the question is, how do you pay them? They don't have land to go back to. They've, they've got nothing, no means of producing food for themselves anymore. Well, give them something valuable, right? Give them small tokens of valuable metal that will enable them to go and barter for the food that they need. They can't grow the food anymore, so they need to get it from somewhere. So give them a, a small token, right? Some sort of small um, piece of precious metal that they can then use to barter. Now I say barter because 
it's not at a time yet where you say, well, X amount of denarius or, you know, shekel or whatever is worth X amount of grain because there's no money economy yet. There's no sense of when you go into a village, um, they've got these fixed prices or agreed prices of, of how much uh, a pound of flour is going to be worth or something like that. That, that. that doesn't exist yet. Everyone's still dealing with trade. Everyone's still dealing with bartering. I've, I've got this much grain. How many fish can I swap it for? Now this person comes in with these little silver coins or these little silver tokens well, I can see that it's a valuable metal. It's it's you know it weighs X amount of whatever. Um, I'll give you such and such fish or such and such grain for that small coin that you have. So that's how money gets its, it gets its start. It starts in armies amongst soldiers who've got no other means of producing food. They don't have, they don't own any land, and so this is how they're going to have something with which they can buy their their basic necessities with. So that's sort of the sort of the context of the period that we're coming into. This is it's still uh, an agrarian society, very much so. But there's these small evidences now of money. All right. So in that context, we come to the exile uh, of Egypt. Uh, sorry, the exile of the Israelites. So um, they've just completely stuffed everything up. They've blown it with the constitution and God has said, all right, enough's enough. I'm sending you off into exile, right? We're going to, we're just going to start from scratch. So Nebuchadnezzar, it's year 597, Nebuchadnezzar, so the, the Babylonian king, besieges Jerusalem, takes everybody into exile. Fast forward seven years, it's 538, the Jews then return to Jerusalem and this is this time under the Persians and this is when they're going to reestablish the nation. So it's, it's Israel take two. Well, we read about this here in Nehemiah 10. 1037 says, Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priests, to the first um, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, uh, of the fruit of all our trees, and of the new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from the Aaron. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. So, in other words, they come back from exile. The first thing they reestablish is the tithe, because the tithe is what got them into trouble in the first place. They stopped tithing, and so they ended up in exile. So they come back from exile. This is the first thing they set up. Now, again, we're talking about food. Right, this is a time where money has started to enter into history, but it's not the thing yet. Right, this is something that you occasionally will come across if you happen to meet a soldier, but this is not something that is being vastly distributed. Everyone is still dealing with money, it's still an agrarian society. Okay, so presumably, what Israel is at this point is still small landowners, um, and it's only it was only a small portion that came back from the exile. But this small group is what is going to become the new nation of Israel. Uh, and again, first thing they establish is the tithe. All right, so we can see again the principles haven't changed. It's still about food. It's still about establishing the priesthood or, or maintaining the priesthood so that we can be a nation. Now it's in this context that we find our most famous passage, that we're, one that we're all familiar with, that we hear on every second offering talk, which is, of course, Malachi 3.10. 
So let's take a closer look at Malachi and understand it now in this context, and especially why it doesn't apply to Christians. Right, so Malachi is set in this particular time. It's the return of the Israelites from uh, of the Jewish people from um, well now the Persian Empire, and they've reestablished. They're, they're or they are in the process of reestablishing their nation. They've reestablished the tithe. They've reestablished the priesthood, trying to rebuild the temple. Um, it's take two of the people of God. So it's in this particular context then that we're talking about if we need to understand Malachi. So it's written about the year 450 BC, thereabouts. And the purpose of this uh, prophecy, this, this book, is it's God explaining to his people why they got into trouble in the first place. This is why you ended up in exile. And it's basically God just laying out five grievances that he has with them or five disputes that he has with them um, as to why he made this thing happen or let this thing happen in the first place. So I won't go into detail about them, but 1 verse 6, 1 6 to 2 9. So first of, his first dispute is that your priests or you priests have despised me. So you rejected me, you despised me, this is why, why you got in trouble. 2.10 to 16, um, you, you people treat each other terribly. You're just not good people. Um, and so this is why I was angry with you. 2.17 to 3.5, he says, you, you know, you always question my justice, right? So, you know, you're just questioning me, who I am. Well, again, these are the reasons why you got into trouble. Then 3.6 to 12, you robbed me of my tithe. You're not tithing. That's why primarily you got into trouble in the first place. And then 3.13 to 4.3, you have given up on me. So these are the reasons that, that um, well, this is what God is saying to his people. This is the context or this is what Malachi is all about. So immediately we realize this is not talking to us. This is not our issue. First, it's 450 BC, so it's 2,500 years ago to a, to a people group who are not us. Nevertheless, we find Malachi preached all the time. It's just taken as default. We're coming to an offering time, so here's Malachi 3.10 as a reminder that we all Christians need to tithe. Well, already there's a problem here, but let's have a closer look at the passage and, and see what it's really going on. So Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Okay, so I just want you to put yourselves into your Christian context, into your church context, and ask yourself the question, is this the situation you find yourself in? Do you find that you are uh, the nation, nationally um, Jewish and that you've walked away from God? Are you, have you just returned from exile? Is that your situation right now? Probably not. Um, do you, is God saying to you right now, you need to return to me because you've walked away from me? Again, probably not. Okay, he's talking to the people of Israel. He's reminding them how they got into the mess in the first place. And these are the instructions that for how they're going to return to him, how they're going to restore them, be restored as the people of God. Now, if that's not a problem that you're facing right now, then I would suggest that this doesn't have anything to do with you, which it clearly, clearly doesn't. But anyway, he goes on, verse 8, <clears throat> Will a mere mortal rob God? 
yet you rob me. Well, already this is problematic. This this doesn't sound like something that a Christian can do, but here we go. He says, but you ask, how how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. What is most astounding to me is when Christians preach this, when Christians say this to another Christian as being their present situation. Again, let me read it again. You ask, how are you, how are you robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation. Now, already that should be the giveaway that your whole nation, well, hang on a second, I'm not, what's the nation of Australia got to do with this or whatever nation you're part of? Well, of course, nothing because he's not talking to our nations. He's talking to the nation of Israel two and a half thousand years ago. But here's the big one. You are under a curse because you are robbing me. Now, honestly, if you're preaching this, if you're saying this to another Christian, you are a very, very brave person to say to another Christian that they are under a curse because they are robbing God That's a really, really, really brave thing to say. Now, the last time I checked, just the last time I checked, Jesus broke every curse. Now, that I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that at the cross, he broke every single curse that was holding us back from God. Now, unless my theology is wrong, I'm pretty sure I'm correct on that one, that Jesus broke every curse. Yet this is saying that we... Christians, at least if you're preaching this to Christians, um, this is saying that you are under a curse because you're robbing God, that even Jesus apparently cannot break. So Jesus, you're a Christian, Jesus has presumably broken the curses on your life, and yet now you're saying actually you're back under a curse, and it's such a powerful curse that clearly even Jesus can't do it. It's a curse that comes only by robbing God. So then the question is, how do we get out of this curse? If Jesus can't break it, how do we get out of this curse? Well, apparently the only way you can get out of it is to start paying your tithes. You're cursed because you're not tithing, and this is a curse so strong that even Jesus can't can't, um, break it. Apparently the only way for this curse to be broken is that you have to buy your way out of it. I'm just going to let that sink in for a minute. Just just think about that for a second and ask yourself, is that something you really, really, really want to teach or have taught over your life? I would suggest no, no. Um, In fact, I would suggest that that's blasphemy of the highest order. I would suggest that that's exactly the reason why Paul was writing to the Galatians, because what the Galatians have been told was that you're not fully a Christian until you get circumcised. Jesus isn't powerful enough to save you unless you go and finish the job by getting circumcised. In other words, by observing Old Testament law. It would sound to me like we're doing exactly the same thing. We're saying to Christians, you are almost saved. You're like 95% saved. Jesus has done most of the work. You have to buy the rest. Give your 10% and then you'll finish the job because Jesus apparently isn't powerful enough to finish the job. Now, again, I'll just sort of suggest maybe go back and read Galatians and everything that Paul has to say to those people who are trying to insist that that's what the Christians need to do. Paul says, um, those people are going to hell. 
straight up, they're, they're going to hell, <laughs> right? There's, there's no two ways about it. There's no ifs, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. You're going to hell when you preach that. And that's exactly the same thing as saying to a Christian, you have to tithe from this particular verse, because what this verse actually says is that all of you are under a curse because you haven't tithed. I'll just, I'll just leave that with you and all of the problems that are associated with that suggestion. Well, anyway, he finishes it off verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, of course, that's where we pick up the verse, isn't it? We never talk about verse 9. We only ever talk about verse 10. Hey, Christians, time to tithe. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Well, already we've seen the problem with what this whole passage is trying to apply this to Christians. It's very problematic, but let's get practical. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, okay? So obviously that would mean 10%, presumably, um, into the storehouse. What's the storehouse? Well, it was a physical building. It was an actual building that held grain because there was a lot of food product that needed to be brought in. So we're talking about a physical place here. It's not your bank account for your church. It's an actual building on the property, that there may be actual food in my house because it's an agrarian society, pre-money, where this is what we're working with here. Now, again, the, I mean, you're already under a curse, so you may as well just go all the way and build a proper storehouse to dump the money in if we're going to be true to this passage and, and literal to this passage. But, of course, that is just, well, it's already blasphemy, so this is just not something you're going to do. But then he goes on, test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be enough room to store it. And of course, we love that one because what it suggests is that you've got your 10, you've brought your 10% in. And so God is going to richly bless you. You've paid up for, to the church, you've filled our bank account. And so therefore God is going to bless you abundantly. He's going to throw open the floodgates and you're going to have more money than you know what to do with. Again, already there's so many problems with preaching this passage, but I want to just throw one more out there. Um, what about the people that can't give 10%? <laughs> what about the single mothers? What about the people who are living in just abject poverty, who don't have 10 cents to rub together, let alone 10% of their income to give to the church? I mean, what about the multiple multiplicities of financial constraints that people have that prevent them even being able to give 10% in the first place. I mean, what, what about those people? Uh, I mean, I understand that the, 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 we've talked about the principles of tithing. Number one is to support the Levites, to support the ministry, and that's the one we always insist on. We need to tithe so that we can support the ministry. But what about the other function of the tithe, which is to support those in, those in the community who have nothing, those who are impoverished? That's what the tithe is meant to be for. And yet it seems that from those people, we're saying you need to tithe. In fact, if you don't tithe, even though you can't afford it, you're under a curse. And it's probably because you're under a curse. It's probably the curse that's causing you not to be able to afford it in the first place or whatever other guilt we want to land the people. And you can sort of see where all of the cycles of problem go with trying to preach this to Christians. Or perhaps I would suggest it has nothing to do with Christians, which it clearly doesn't. So this is the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament tells us about tithing. This is everything we need to know about. And again, it's got nothing to do with Christians. And to insist on preaching it to Christians is blasphemy, straight up blasphemy. There's no other way to put it. 
But there are principles of tithing which I keep reiterating. Number one, to support the ministry. And number two, to support those in the community, in your immediate um, community around you that have that have no other means of supporting themselves. And in our context, what I'm talking about is within your immediate Christian community. That's the community that this Old Testament is talking about here. So again, that's the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament have to say about this? Or or how does this carry through into our New Testament context? Well, let's have a look at that now. All right, so I said at the top of the episode that the New Testament doesn't say a single thing about tithing. Right? It doesn't mention anything about it. And it, it really doesn't. It, there's, there's no mention of tithing in the New Testament. Uh, and so whatever idea of tithing we, we get all comes from the Old Testament. And there's a reason why the New Testament doesn't mention tithing. It's not that it's not there in some sort of practice, but it doesn't talk about it because the circumstances of the New Testament, of the people of God in the New Testament, has already changed substantially. Their their, their circumstances are completely different, even from the end of the Old Testament. Um, when we leave, when we leave off the Old Testament, we find we find them under the Persian Empire. When we come to the first century, to the New Testament, we're under the Roman Empire, and there's been a Greek Empire in between. So the whole world has completely changed since that time, and their circumstances have changed as well. Uh, for a start, it's still an agrarian society, but money is much more prominent. The Greeks have come through and they've introduced the drachma. Now we've got the uh, the Romans that have come through and introduced the denarius. So there is more currency uh, circulating and there's more people. There, there's still majority of people working on the farms, but there's more and more people working in cities, working as tra- in trades. Um, there's more the, – the economy has changed quite a, quite a bit from even – 450 years ago when Malachi was written. Um, So money as an example, you've got Roman currency, you've got Greek currency, you've got other local currencies. When you um, come to the temple, um, you pay a temple tax. Well, you, you... when you pay that temple tax, that has to be paid with Jewish money. You can't bring foreign money into the temple. And so that your denarius or your drachma from wherever you're from has to be exchanged. And so you find money exchanges turning up at the temple. And we see Jesus getting infuriated with those guys and kicking over tables. So the, the, the whole economic system is quite different to what it used to be. But importantly, what you also don't find in the New Testament are Levites, right? We've had Levites in the Old Testament, but after the exile, there's no more Levites, right? All of those guys have gone into exile. And so what you've got is a new priesthood. So the priesthood is the one we find now in Jerusalem, but they're not from the tribe of of Levi. They're just from any old tribe because the whole context around even the way the priesthood works has completely changed as well. Um, uh, And so... That is different in that way, but the uh, the principle of of the Levites hasn't changed. There's still a ministry. The the temple still functions, and the temple is is run by the officials. And those guys need money, right? That that still is true. So you've you've still got a, a need for finances to come in to support that, to support the temple, to support the um the, the ministry of God. So what? you do now to fund that is you pay what's called a temple tax. So every Jewish person, even whether you're living in and around Jerusalem or if you're living in the diaspora, even as far as Rome, 
every Jew pays a temple tax. All right, so they they pay all of their local taxes, whatever region they live in. But they, in addition to that, they also pay their temple tax. So this gets gathered up, and then once a year, the temple tax gets brought down to Jerusalem. So that's a regular thing that occurs. Um, there's piles and piles of money being brought into the temple from all over the Jewish world because most Jews as well, they don't live not only are they not landowners, but they don't even live in Israel anymore. What used to be Israel, they don't even live there. The majority of Jews are living in the diaspora. They're living in cities all around the Roman Empire. But their uh, allegiance to the to God is still uh, shown through this temple tax. So that's something that's been regularly paid. Now, is that 10%? Well, we don't know. Um, it's just a temple tax. It's just whatever you can pay, I guess, whatever you can spare. Um, you're paying taxes to Rome, you're paying taxes to your local magistrates, and on top of that, you're paying your temple tax as well to um, back to Jerusalem. So all of this has been brought in, again, for the purposes of supporting the ministry. So that hasn't changed. That's what specifically ethnic Jewish people are doing in the first century. Not us, first century Jewish people. All right, and that would even even include Jewish Christians later on. As Jews are becoming Christians, um, they would still be paying the temple tax because they're still ethnically bound to that practice. Now, that doesn't apply to Gentiles, as we're going to see later on. This is still something that's only happening amongst the Jews. So that's what tithing, the the, the best um, analogy or the best um, sort of form that tithing has taken. What used to be tithing in the Old Testament has become the temple tax of, of, of the New Testament. However, we do find a couple of key passages that still get used by us today as Christians. Uh, we still use these in the context of, of giving and tithing, what, which is sort of talking around this temple tax, what these um, of this particular practice. So let's quickly look at them and just sort of see what, what they have to say. So Matthew 23, 23, and the equivalent is in Luke eleven forty two. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglect, neglecting the former. Okay, so there's not. it doesn't specifically say a tithe, the word tithing, but he talks about a 10% portion. Okay, so clearly these Pharisees are continuing on the practice of tithing. They're paying their temple tax. And you go, hang on, mint, dill, and cumin. What is he talking about? That that sounds like food products. Well, it is. Um, It's an exaggeration, right? Jesus is exaggerating how meticulous they are about the 10%, how meticulous they are about their their tithing or their their temple tax, um, down to absolutely every single thing that they own is divided, 10% is taken off to, to give to God. So it's not an instruction, it's a rebuke. That's the real point here. You, you're faithful in your observance to the minutiae of the law, but you've forgotten the bigger matter of the law, which is love, right? justice, mercy, faithfulness. You've actually forgotten the heart attitude of what the law is about. So the point is that this is not an instruction for Christians that we have to give 10% of absolutely everything we own down to the blades of grass that grow in our backyard. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you know, obey the laws, but don't lose sight of the bigger point, which is your heart attitude to God and to his people. So that's 
what's happening in this verse. It's not an instruction for Christians that they have to tithe, right? It's a rebuke of Pharisees, remembering too that when Jesus was around, we're still in the Old Covenant, okay? This is still Old Covenant times here because we haven't got a New Covenant yet because Jesus hasn't poured out his Spirit, right? That's Acts 2. This is still the end of the Old Covenant under which they're still working on this expectation of tithing, which has become this temple tax. Okay, so that's one. But here's the other one that we like to we, that we like to talk about. So Matthew twelve, sorry, Mark twelve forty one, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Okay, a couple of really, really important points here. So first of all, it's a poor widow. Now, remember, there's two functions to the tithe. Number one, to support the Levites. Number two, to support the widows. So the context here already is that here is this impoverished widow who's coming and still being forced to pay the temple tax into a, a set of money that should actually be used to help her. Yet she's been forced to contribute into it. And everything she has, these two very small copper coins. Okay, so what are these copper coins? Real quick. So the copper coin that we're talking about here is what we call a quadrantus. Okay, so a quadrantus. Now, uh, these coins were so small and so valueless. The reason why they were minted was because for people who were so poor that they didn't even have normal coinage, right? Just so that they could have something, they minted these tiny little coins, the size of a fingertip, just so that you've got something to have, something to trade with. So a quadrantus, right? One one quadrantus is worth 164th of a denarius. So a denarius is the Roman coin. Now, a denarius is about a day's wage, okay? So take a day's wage, divide that by 64, and that's what we're talking about here. So she's got two of those, two, uh, basically one thirty-two or two sixty-fourths of a day's wage. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's put that into today's terms. So in 2023, the minimum wage in Australia is $21.38 an hour, okay? So $21.38 per hour um, in 2023- that's going to give you about $160 a day. So $160 a day, Australian. Now, 164th of that is $2.50. So one tiny little coin that she had in modern money, modern Australian money is worth $2.50. So two of those is worth $5. So everything she had to her name was $5. Now, that sounds like something, right? That sounds somewhat substantive, $5. At least you can still buy something with that. But let's talk about purchasing power. So today, right, take, if I take my $5 up to my local bakery, I can buy a loaf of bread. Now, a loaf of bread for me at my bakery is worth $3.50. So for $5, I can get a loaf of bread and maybe something to put on it, maybe a bit of butter or something to put on there. And that might get me through a couple of days, right? Or that's, there's some sort of food in that with my $5. So $5 today, it's, it's something. Let's go back to her time. So in her time, her $5 or her two small coins, well, bread in her time 
one that same loaf of bread that I paid three dollars fifty for, the equivalent for her is twenty dollars. So one loaf of bread for her, same weight of bread was worth twenty dollars. So now take her five dollars again. That five dollars is only worth a quarter of a loaf of bread. That's everything she had was quarter of a loaf of bread. And that's what she was giving into this treasury. Again, a treasury which was actually supposed to be used to give her food, to actually support her. So you've got all these rich people bringing in all this money that they have. And yet here's this poor widow with not enough even to buy a quarter of a loaf of bread, been forced to give all of that into the treasury. So again, this isn't an instruction to us for how much we should give. This is a rebuke of the people who should have recognized that the purpose of this money was to support exactly the women who are being abused in this particular circumstance. So again, it's not an instruction. It's not a command to tithe. It's a rebuke of these people and exactly Jesus saying, this is why I came. Right, I came because you're faithful with the tithing, but have forgotten the whole point of the, the law, which was justice, love, and mercy. And more than that, you're not even looking after your own people anymore. Right? You've got these widows amongst you who can't even afford a quarter of a loaf of bread, and you're making them give even that when you should be taking from that pile of money and giving it to her so that she never has to worry about where she's going to get an next loaf of bread from. You've completely missed the point is what Jesus is saying. This is exactly why I've had to come here in the first place so that I can start a new covenant under which we Christians now in the year 2023, we're the ones who are going to be living. So I think you get the point, right? This tithing, this Old Testament practice of tithing, it's not for us. Right? Everything that the Pentateuch has to say about tithing does not relate to us Christians in the year 2023. And in fact, to insist on it, to teach it, is blasphemy. It really is just straight up blasphemy. It's exactly what Paul was raging against in his letter to the Galatians. However, however, there are principles to tithing that we've established here. Number one, to support the Levites. Number two, to support the poor amongst us, those who don't have the means to otherwise look after themselves. Now, that absolutely applies in the New Testament. That principle, that practice exactly still applies to us today. Now, what does that look like? How much should that be? Well, that's going to be the subject of next week's, the next two weeks of podcasts. We're going to look next week at um, looking after those amongst us in need. And then the week after, we're going to talk about looking after the ministry. And within the context of all of that, how much should we actually be giving? What does the New Testament have to say about that? Again, we'll look at that next week. Well, anyway, I hope that's been helpful. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. And I look forward to talking to you next week as we continue this series on the New Testament and money. See you then.